0: From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can always be reached at Mark.penzener at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Well, even with all the market news of late, it's important to step back and think about some of the longer-term planning issues. For many, IRA accounts or their beneficiary IRAs are a large part of the asset base. In 2019, the SECURE Act was passed, and investors are still learning how to deal with it. And that's not really their fault. The government only recently ruled on many of the aspects of the Act. I thought I'd spend this episode getting everyone up to speed on the SECURE Act and how it impacts us. To do that, I've invited National Director of Tax Research at Bernstein, Bob Dietz, to join the discussion. Bob, thanks for joining. Yeah,
1: thanks, Mark. It's great to be here.
0: Bob, a lot changed in this act, so we've got a lot to cover. Maybe I'll start with um, the very basics. Traditionally, people had to um, take money out of their IRA at age 70 and a half.
1: That's changed in in the act. Can you explain that? Yeah, that's actually changed twice now. Once because of the SECURE Act, and then again because of the SECURE 2.0 Act, which was – just passed at the beginning of this year. So um, under the SECURE Act, we had an increase in the required beginning date to age 72. And with SECURE 2.0, that increased even further to age 73. Do you have to get it out by December
0: 31st of the year you turn 73? Or do you have some room to maneuver
1: there? you do have some room to maneuver. So it's actually April of the year after you reach your required beginning date. So if your required
0: beginning date is age 73 and you don't take it out by uh, December 31, that next year, correct me if I'm wrong here, in that calendar year, you're gonna have two, right? You're gonna have for the one that you, I'll say missed, but you have the flexibility to go into the next calendar year till April. And then you still have the one for the current year. So that would
1: be a a double year. That's right. You're looking at two RMDs in that particular year. And for some, that could have income tax
0: ramifications, right? If they have a high, high RMD and now you've got to do two in one year. Am I thinking about that
1: correctly? That's right. It's going to push you up the income tax brackets. And getting that bracket run is very important. And so what we like to do is we like to spread income out over as many years as we can to try to get multiple runs at the income tax brackets. Now we're gonna talk more about bracket runs in a
0: minute, but, but conceptually, if you're an individual who's in the highest tax bracket because of your circumstances, this isn't gonna be as critical, but if you have a lower tax bracket, and your RMD could throw you into a higher tax bracket, what Bob's gonna talk about in a minute is, is really important. Um, Bob, I'm gonna to turn to beneficiary IRAs for a moment. The Secure Impact had a really large impact on them. You used to be able to take IRA distributions over your lifetime based on a number of IRS factors. Um, my understanding, not anymore. Can you explain the specifics of this?
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, prior to the Secure Act, a beneficiary could stretch the retirement account over their life expectancy. So they would take a required minimum distribution out each year after the death of the participant. And they were able to do that and defer that income tax liability over many, many years into the future. What the SECURE Act did was it put a 10 year limit for most beneficiaries on how long they could defer that income tax. So for most beneficiaries, most designated beneficiaries, they're going to have to take a full distribution by year 10. Now, there are a few exceptions to that, and the exceptions are known as eligible designated beneficiaries, and there's five exceptions. The first one is the spouse of the deceased participant. They can still stretch that retirement account over their life expectancy. The second is a minor child of the deceased participant. Now it has to be a child of the participant. This is not just any minor who's named beneficiary. So if we have a minor child of the participant, they're going to be able to stretch the retirement account out, but only until they reach age 21. Once they reach age 21, the age of majority, then that 10 year rule is going to come back into play for them as well. Next we have, disabled and chronically ill beneficiaries, they can also continue to stretch retirement accounts over their life expectancy. And then the last category of eligible designated beneficiaries are beneficiaries who are within 10 years or 10 years younger than the participant. So oftentimes we see this with siblings who are close in age. Um, In many cases, they would be able to continue to stretch out that required minimum distribution over their lifetime.
0: Is this retroactive? Did it start at a specific point in time? Um, if you have a beneficiary IRA, there there is a decedent; someone passed away. So this this
1: isn't capturing every beneficiary IRA. Is there a, is there a grandfathering or a, or a start date? Yeah, that's right. So um, this does not affect any beneficiary designations where the participant had died prior to 2020. So if we had someone who had passed away in 2018 or 2017, they continue under the old rules. But where the um, change occurs is when the current beneficiary who is stretching that retirement account over their lifetime under the old rules, when they die, their Designated beneficiary is now going to be stuck with that 10 year rule. They're no longer going to be able to continue to extend that beneficiary IRA after the first beneficiary's death. So I may trademark this, but the double stretch is now against the rules. The double stretch is against the rules. That's right.
0: Um, the, this RMD that's going to come out over 10 years, I don't mean to get too technical about this because we'll lose people and, and I'll fall asleep, but how is the RMD generally calculated over this 10-year period?
1: Yeah, so I don't want to put you to sleep on this, but this was actually <laughs> a um, a big news event for many of us planners in the industry when the proposed regulations came out because when the law was first passed, what um, many practitioners thought the law had said was that regardless of when the participant dies, the designated beneficiary would be able to not have to take any distributions for a full 10 years after the participant's death. So no distributions would be required until a lump sum in the 10th year. What the proposed regulations actually say though is that's true if the participant dies before they were required to begin their required minimum distributions, But if the participant dies after their required beginning date, at that point, the beneficiaries now need to take an annual required minimum distribution based either on their life expectancy or the ghost life expectancy, which is calculated off of the participant, That is true up until we get to year 10. And so if there are still assets in the retirement account, the beneficiary account at year 10, then a full distribution occurs at that point. So um, again, if death occurs after the required beginning date, the beneficiary is going to be required to take annual distributions and also will be forced to take a lump sum distribution in year 10 if there are any assets still remaining in the retirement account. I'm delighted. Be
0: straightforward for everyone. Um, let me ask the question now: For someone who had a beneficiary IRA from someone who passed away, in I guess it would be 2020 or 2021, and they didn't take a required minimum distribution because these these regulations were not clear. Um, where do they end up now? Are they are they delinquent? Do they have to do a whole
1: bunch? Do they have to catch up? Are they penalized? Where are they in the spectrum? Yeah, so that was a pretty big issue that we were very concerned about last year was what do we do with the beneficiaries who did not take a distribution in 2021 or had not yet taken a distribution in 2022, but were required to. Um, Fortunately, towards the end of the year, it's actually in October, the IRS and Treasury Department released Notice 2253, which essentially announced that they would not issue final regulations until after 2022 and that they would not apply a excise tax to the extent that taxpayers did not take what's called a specified RMD. And the specified RMD is a category that was created to capture these situations we're talking about where we had a beneficiary who was under the impression that they did not need to take an annual distribution because the law was not clear but when the proposed regulations came out, realized that they then needed to take a required minimum distribution. So for 2021 and 2022, there seems to be some relief. 2023, we'll have to see what the final regulations say.
0: Nothing like passing a rule in 2019 and waiting two or three years to explain to people what it means. It's a it's a nice luxury you have when you're the government. Well, um, let me ask the question, we were always, of the belief that tax deferral and this idea of a stretch IRA where you can run those distributions out over your lifetime or multiple lifetimes is, is invaluable. Now I know at Bernstein, nothing's invaluable. We calculate everything. And you did some math on, on the notion of how much is losing the stretch IRA harming you versus what you have to do today. Um, can you put some context around that, what you found in, in your research?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we first heard about the SECURE Act and we were trying to look into the implications, we were very concerned because tax deferral traditionally has always been a very important feature and um, something that we really tried to strive for to try to get as much of our income, as much of our investments inside a tax deferred environment. But when you run out the numbers, what you see is that on an after-tax basis, tax deferral is not quite worth as much as everyone had thought it was originally. And that's for one main reason. Um, You are essentially deferring what could have been taxed at say a capital gains rate, typically deferring that to what will be taxed as a ordinary income. So you're going from maybe a 20% capital gains rate to a 37% federal income tax rate when you take distributions from the IRA or the retirement account. And so what you see is that when you tax affect the IRA versus um, not being able to Stretch the IRA any longer. What you find is that there is not much difference, at least for the first maybe fourteen to sixteen years, between those two scenarios. But once you get out past sixteen years or so, you do start to see a little bit of benefit if you were able to continue to stretch the IRA. But it's not, you know, millions and millions of dollars. It's um, in the tens of thousands of dollars. So I appreciate you. Now you're talking. It's, you know, 14 years out
0: until the stretch would be better, right? So it's it's not the slam dunk I think people at first thought. But our job is always to maximize return and limit taxes for people. So are there some strategies that an investor or a client can use to help close any perceived or real gap?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing you want to look at is for a beneficiary. Does it make sense to try to get that 10-year stretch if they can so in a situation where you have a participant who dies before their required beginning date so the beneficiary has the choice to potentially wait a full 10 years and then take a lump sum distribution or they could take distributions out each year over that 10 year period. What you wanna look at is where are they in the income tax brackets right now and where are they expected to be in the future? And so if they're a, a top taxpayer right now, then deferring and waiting until the 10th year to take the distribution makes a lot of sense. But if you have a taxpayer who is in a lower income tax bracket, then what you might wanna do is take distributions out each year over that 10 year period, so that now the client or the taxpayer is able to run up those income tax brackets in multiple years and end up um, with overall, with lower income taxes on the distributions than had they just simply waited the full 10 years to take the distribution. Other strategy that is coming up quite a bit are Roth conversions. And um, Roth conversions are and still remain very attractive for many taxpayers to at least consider at this point. But with a Roth conversion, the idea is that you're going to pay the income tax liability on that traditional IRA or on that retirement account today for the privilege of moving those assets over to a Roth account that is now completely tax exempt when distributions come out in the future. So the idea is pay the income taxes now, but get tax-free growth into the future. And that can be very valuable, especially for beneficiaries, because with a Roth, a beneficiary Roth account, for most beneficiaries, they're going to be able to wait a full 10 years before they're required to take a distribution from that beneficiary Roth account. And that's because the rules for beneficiary Roth accounts are a little bit different than beneficiary rules for traditional accounts. And so for a Roth account, we're able to get that full 10 year stretch before any distribution is required. You know, it, it seems to highlight
0: for me, as much as we can be thoughtful about taxes and how to maximize this, an answer to a lot of these questions are, it depends on the individual circumstances. So Bob, I, I take it that your team and my team work really closely with investors' accountants because th- this is really a function of the individual's tax circumstances
1: as much as it is anything in a secure app. That a, is that a reasonable way to think about this? That's absolutely right. Pretty much everything in finance and investment is fact dependent. And so we have to do the work, we have to look at all of the different factors that are driving the financial outcomes for the taxpayer and for the client. And so it's never just simply relying on a rule of thumb, you have to look, you have to do the work, you have to run the numbers to come up with the right advice and the best advice for the client. Um. Asset location is a
0: topic we've talked a lot about over the years and continue to. The, the, the idea of asset location being, I have stocks, I have bonds, I, I might have alternative investments. I have a personal account, I have an IRA account. Which investments do I want to put where? So if I'm a half stock, half bond investor, that doesn't mean all of my accounts should all be half stock, half bonds. There could be ways to locate the assets to make it most advantageous to me. Um, Bob, is all that still accurate? Have any of these rules changed? Does the SECURE Act have an impact on on how we think about asset location?
1: So generally, again, it's going to depend on several factors. Um, Number one is the length of time that the investor potentially has. So if the investor has to spend down their retirement account very quickly to meet their spending needs, Because of that shorter time horizon, that's going to affect the type of assets that we want to hold in the retirement accounts. That's one factor. Another factor is the characteristics of the investment itself. Is it taxed as ordinary income? Is it taxed as capital gains? Because what we want to be careful about is um, putting assets that would be taxed favorably at a low capital gains rate, for example, we wanna be careful about putting those into an account where they're going to be converted to ordinary income. And so that can sometimes happen with retirement accounts. And so you have to do the analysis on where does that asset location make sense? Does it make sense to overweight stocks or other types of investments in the retirement account? or does it make sense to underweight them? And that's going to be dependent on several factors and um, unique to each client situation.
0: Let me go big picture in our final few minutes together. Um, often I'll hear from clients that IRAs are terrible from an estate planning wealth transfer perspective because they're, they're thought to be double taxed, both the estate tax and then the tax on the distributions.
1: Is that accurate? I would say they're very challenging from an estate tax perspective. And um, that is because, yes, there is an element of double taxation in that you're paying income taxes um, and estate taxes on those assets, estate taxes potentially sooner and then income taxes at a future point when distributions are taken. But there is a deduction that you do get that offsets a portion of that um, double taxation and that's called the income in respect of a decedent deduction. The problem with that deduction is the value of it decreases over time. And typically what happens is you're taking distributions from the beneficiary retirement account over time. And so that deduction is not fully realized. So you do have a little bit of a double taxation that occurs in um, many cases. The other part that's really challenging about retirement accounts in the estate plan is you can't just simply transfer or gift a retirement account. If you do that, you trigger income taxes. And so in many cases, these are assets that are going to remain in the estate. They're not going to be used to be transferred outside of the estate, um, used for certain types of wealth transfer strategies, where it might be used is for charitable purposes. So there is the ability once you're over age 70 and a half to take up to $100,000 each year and have that transferred to a charity completely income tax free. So there are some charitable benefits that you can have with IRAs, but there's um, quite a few limits when it comes to transferring those assets to taxable investors.
0: And my last question for today, I worry, is also going to be a it depends answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, when clients get to retirement or to the point in time where they're taking required minimum distributions from their IRA, or they just need money to live on and they're over you know, age 59 and a half, there's been conversations about do they spend from their um, taxable, their personal assets first, before their retirement, or do they take larger distributions from their IRAs even though it's income tax instead of taking from their joint or personal accounts? Um, How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that is a very complex analysis and it definitely depends. And what is really driving that analysis is um, number one, what's the income tax rate today? And what are the expected income tax rates in the future? um, If we expect to have, lower income tax rates in the future, then perhaps we don't want to be spending from the retirement account today. But if we expect to have higher income tax rates in the future, for whatever reason, whether that is a um, tax policy related issue or whether that's just a income related issue for that specific taxpayer, if they expect to be in a higher tax rate in the future than spending from the retirement account sooner, can make a lot of sense. But oftentimes when we're talking about spending early from a retirement account, what I wanna caution people against is just simply trying to take assets out of the retirement account and pay income taxes on them. What I'd rather see for most of our clients that are in that situation is they do a Roth conversion and pay the income taxes on the Roth conversion. So instead of simply just pulling assets out of the IRA for spending purposes, I'd rather see them do that for a Roth conversion and then spend from um, their taxable assets. But again, it's going to depend on each client situation. Bob, we did almost
0: 25 minutes on tax. We learned a ton and I, I think we
1: kept people awake. What do you think? I sure hope so. I, I know I stayed awake. <laughs> Bob, this was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely. Anytime.
0: And to our listeners, feel free again to email me at mark.penziner at to call me at 212-969-6655 for any questions or comments on this podcast, this topic, or any other related topic that we can be helpful on. And make sure to like us or review this podcast wherever you listen to it. Until next
1: time.